Psalms 14 and 15 are a bridge section between collection one and collection two of the first book of the Psalms. So those of you that have the backside of your handout, you should see Psalms one and two, the gateway, the doors. Psalms one and two are like doors that open wide the themes of the whole book of Psalms. And then within the book of Psalms, the the book of the Bible that we call Psalms, there's 150 different songs that are written in Hebrew poetry for the sake of worship and prayer and instruction. And they're divided into five broader books or collections. Most people think that they reflect then the five-part breaking up of the Torah or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis to Deuteronomy. And therefore, they're reflecting the totality of God's word, reflecting on his instruction. As Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who meditates on the instruction of God, the Torah, the law of the Lord, day and night. And so what you're going to notice is that right now we're in a sermon series on book 1, Psalms 3 to 41. And then we'll take a break as a church from the Psalms for a little bit to study something in the New Testament. And then we'll pick up book 2, and repeat that pattern of break, book three, break all the way till we finish the Psalms. And we've been working through them one at a time, and now we are in Psalms 14 and 15. And on your handout, you should see that there are two collections within book one. So the first pair of chart is just the overall, all five books of all 150 Psalms. Then the next chart is book one, collection one, collection two. And we know these things just based on the way that there's key words and phrases and themes and design patterns. And so you can see that when we studied collection one, I mentioned that Psalm eight is a wisdom psalm that does not fit with Psalms three through seven or nine through 14. Because when you read nine through 14, as we've been doing as a church, you notice how often their cries of lament and their prayers to God to have rescue and deliverance from God's enemies. And so that's the broader theme that runs through 3 through 14. But then right in the middle, Psalm 8's a declaration of praise. And on the either side of it is this statement, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, in a similar way, Psalm 14 ends where Psalm 15 will begin. If you have your Bibles, you should hopefully see this or on the handout. Psalm 14 ends, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Do you see the phrase there that's saying Zion? Zion is the name of a mountain where Jerusalem was, where the temple was built, where God's presence was, the capital city of God's people in the Old Testament. So that's the significance of this phrase, Oh, that salvation would come for Israel from out of Zion. Then notice the way 15.1 begins. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Question for you. What's the holy hill? Where is the holy hill? Answer, Zion. So the way 14 ends and the way 15 begins is one clue that 14 and 15 are like bridges or hinges of these collections. Another clue is that if you read Psalm 14, then later today or this week, read Psalm 53. 
Jot this down. Make a mental note. Psalm 14, Psalm 53. You will start to realize these are like copied. They're like the exact same psalm until you get to verse 7 of Psalm 14. Verse 7 is not the same as Psalm 53. In other words, it seems like there was a poem that comprises Psalm 14, 1 to 6. That poem is really about the corruption of the world and of Israel and the enemies of God. And then there was an addition added, it seems, in verse 7, or the addition that was added in Psalm 53. You can read when you notice the difference between the two psalms. What I'm trying to help you see is that this chart that's in front of you is not just like wild guesses. It's, it's by studying the flow and the pattern of these arrangement of the Psalms. And so Psalm 15 is the beginning of collection number two. One little thing I need to mention before we read the Psalm, just so you can kind of get your bearings where we're at. Psalm 15 and Psalm 24 are our bookends of collection two. So you'll notice when you look at the chart that it goes 15, 16, 17, 18. Then your wisdom psalm is Psalm 19, which is all about the Torah and the perfection of God's law. And then Psalm 2021 mirrors 18. And Psalm 22 mirrors 17. And Psalm 23 mirrors 16. And then finally, Psalm 24 mirrors Psalm 15. In fact, what did we just read in Psalm 15, 1? O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Turn two pages in your Bibles to Psalm 24, or maybe it's, I think it's three pages for me. Here's the end of this collection, and this is one of the reasons why people think Psalm 24, Psalm 15 are mirrored psalms. They're supposed to feed off of each other in terms of a message. Look at verse 3 of Psalm 24. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? Does that sound familiar to anyone? Oh yeah, that's exactly what we just read in Psalm 15. And then there's an answer. Notice the answer in Psalm 24. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what's false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of God of Jacob. That's the question and then the answer that you find in Psalm 24. And if you flip back to Psalm 15 or look at your handout, you'll notice, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Answer, he who is walking blamelessly does what is right. And if you remember, what was the answer? The blamelessness would be epitomized and defined by one's speech, speaks truth in his heart, does not slander with his tongue, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but honor, who honors the fear, who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things, shall never be moved, or some translations, he shall never be shaken. So hopefully you can kind of notice just very broadly the theme between Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. They're called gate liturgies, like how do you enter into the presence of God? Who's the one that's worthy to get into God's presence? And that's why I've titled this Two Songs 
about holiness. And that's why, very simply, if you wanted to think about the themes of Psalm 14 and, and Psalm 15, I think we could say that there's a holy God, and God demands holy people to be in his presence. There's a holy God, and he demands holy people if they're going to be in his presence. That's a theme that was taught with this tabernacle, this holy hill, this dwelling in the presence of God. So let's just fast forward. Here you are today, 21st century living here in the United States of America. Here's your question. How does one enter the presence of God ultimately, finally? We use sometimes the lingo, for better or for worse. Are you going to go to heaven when you die? And I think at least in the broadest sense, do you mean by that phrase, are you going to enter into the presence of God and not be cast out, but welcomed in? Relevant question? Important question? Of course, the most ultimate of questions. When you die, will you go into the presence of God? Will you be welcomed in? And what we've already seen just very quickly by looking at a little bit of Psalm 15, a little bit of Psalm 24, is that God is a holy God and he demands holy people. Who will dwell in the holy presence of God? Blameless, pure people, clean hands and a pure heart. So is that you? Look at the end of Psalm 15 once more. He who does these things shall never be shaken or moved. That phrase is going to be repeated throughout this collection, the second collection. This phrase is repeated four times. It's another sign that, oh, this must be a collection together because there's this repetition throughout the collection. And there's this statement that says, if you would like to enter into the presence of God and have confidence as a worshiper of God, then you must be one who is blameless, does what is right, speaks the truth. And if you do these things, notice the emphasis on the doing. You practice and do these things, you will be welcomed into the presence of God. So, there's a bit of a problem, isn't there? There's a bit of a dilemma if you're thinking about your life, the world, and wondering, sometimes I don't do those things. Maybe oftentimes I don't do those things. In fact, Pastor Phil, if I'm honest, I have slandered someone with my tongue. I have done evil against my neighbor. My friend, I've taken up reproach. My eyes, they're vile, and I despise God, and I don't honor him. And even look at verse 5. There's big debates amongst Christian and Jewish interpretation about how this should be worked out. But how many of you have exploited someone who does not put out his money at interest? And the debate is whether or not you can take out any loans, and all banks are a bunch of corrupt people. And some Christians have taken that hard line to say all interest is abominable to God in his sight. I think it's more about, you guys ever seen on certain street corners, these like, you know, instant payday loans or sort of things, these kind of money sharks. There's these categories of people that will prey on the poor and try and help them get out of their situation by giving them ridiculously high interest loans, let's say 15, 20%. Seems like these are the sort of situations that are being rebuked here and being 
described as those who are truly blameless in God's eyes. They would never take advantage of the poor. And so that's the essence of our big idea question. Are you going to enter into the holy presence of God and have God welcome you into his sight saying, good done, good good job, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been holy and blameless your whole life. Well, if you're new to the Bible, you need to realize that Psalm 14, the psalm right before this, gives a rather devastating pronouncement. This is not commands for you to obey. It just is stating poetically the way things are. So look with me at Psalm 14, and let's see the way God's word describes what humans are like on the earth. Will we be blameless? Are we blameless? To the choir master of David, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable, abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one, none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. I don't think it's hard for me to point out to you that the answer that the Bible gives to the question, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, the one who's blameless, who does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. All right, well, who's that? Psalm 14. No one. Maybe one person. No one. Not even one. There is no one who does good. Well, maybe this psalm is in verse 1 talking about atheists. You see, it says the fool in their heart says there is no God. It must be referring to people outside of the church, outside of the community of faith, those people that reject who God is. And it seems like that would be an inaccurate way to read these totalizing statements. Look at verse 2. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man, not just on atheists. This Hebrew phrase is just the common phrase to talk about humans. The Lord from heaven looks down on all the earth and he looks at all the humans and he's wondering, is there any of them that understand through experience God? No, they do not seek after God. All have turned aside. Do you see the total ubiquitous, universal kind of phrases here in this psalm? It's not like just those who are out there that are atheists. This is everyone. And then, just in case you're like, well, maybe this is just Old Testament sort of thing, right? Like, it seemed like God had a little bit more of a negative view of things in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus came along and corrected him and, and, and made God happy or something. That's not true at all, friends. 
The God of the Bible is the same God yesterday, today, and he'll be the same God forever. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. Julie read for us Romans chapter 3 because Paul the Apostle, who's a New Testament Christian, who interacted with Jesus himself, had been awakened to his sin, uses Psalm 14 to make the point that every single human on the earth, whether you are a Jew who's in the community, in the people of God, or an outsider, a non-Christian, a non-Jew, all are under sin. And then Paul quotes a section of Psalm 14 to tell us all have turned aside. All are corrupt. The word corrupt is they're rotten down to their core. Who likes the Bible now? Like, seriously. There's a lot of people that might just say, this is exactly what I have wrong with the Bible. This is what's wrong with Christians. They're just a bunch of finger-pointing condemners. But in fact, if you're hearing the message, Christians should be the first to say, no, I've got one finger pointing at you, but four pointing at me, right? As the saying goes. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. All of us. And therefore, we need to figure out what to do. How do we read these Psalms? How do we make sense of the Bible? And I want to teach you today, as we consider both Psalms 14 and 15's message, but really the message of the entire Bible, something that has tremendously helped me. So I'm in my early 20s, and I'm teaching a bunch of youth in um, a church right out of college, got a job, and I'm working at a church teaching Bible to junior hires, high schoolers, and college students. And if I'm just really honest, I hope none of those sermons and messages ever get rediscovered because they're not good. I didn't know what I was doing. And it was good, though, to, like, get some experience and just really kind of learn my way. And then eventually I stumbled across a concept And I really felt like this concept was life-changing, transformative. It'll help you read the Psalms. It'll help you read the whole Bible. And the concept comes from the Lutheran tradition. So Martin Luther, 500 years ago, started making protests against the Roman Catholic Church. And the tradition of the Lutheran Church since then has created a, a summary that Luther was famous for called Law and Gospel. And so let me give you a little short intro to law gospel. This is not just Martin Luther. A bunch of different people will make bold statements about if you want to know the Bible, if you want to really know what it means to be a Christian, you need to know law gospel. For example, the author of the Heidelberg Catechism, a guy named Zacharias Ursinus, he states that the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the Bible, it has two basic messages. They're summarized with the phrases law and gospel. And in order for us to comprehend the summary and the substance of all of sacred scripture, then we need to first understand law and gospel, the chief and general divisions of holy scripture. So there's one statement during the Reformation of a very influential theologian. Since then, uh, a man named C.F.W. Walter, he's one of these Lutherans, He published these lectures about this concept of law and gospel, and he's got one of my favorite lines of all time. He says, The true knowledge of understanding law and gospel is a glorious light, but not only a glorious light. When you have the correct understanding of law and gospel, you have the correct understanding of the entire 
scriptures. And without this understanding, scripture will be and remain to be a closed book to you. I find that to be provocative. How about you? The Bible will be a closed book. You will not get the Bible if you don't understand the basics of this little principle called law and gospel. One more quote, one of my favorite preachers of all time. People call him the best preacher ever. You ever heard of Charles Haddon Spurgeon? He said, there cannot be a greater difference in the world between the two things that are between law and grace or law and gospel. He who knows the difference between law and grace and always recollects it, that is the essential difference between law and gospel. They have grasped the the marrow of divinity, the marrow, like the core of your being, your bone marrow, the essence, the inner parts of a human being. He uses that illustratively and says, if you want to get the core and the heart of the message of God in the Bible, you must understand the difference between law and grace, law and gospel. So definition time. What do we mean by this concept? Law, gospel, law, grace. Simply put, the law, when referred to in this way, is just a broad category term that means everything that God demands of us. The law is everything that God demands of us. So look at Psalm 14 and 15. Again, there's not commands, but there's expectations. There's demands. You have to believe in God, not just be a theist and not an atheist, but functionally. Most people, when they interpret verse 1 of Psalm 14, say, this is not about atheism. It's about functional atheism. It's when somebody in their heart, not with their mouth, you see the difference? The fool says in their heart, there is no God. You say in your heart there is no God when you decide to be God yourself. You're functionally an atheist every time you sin. Well, how many people are like that? And again, we read the passage. We're corrupt. We do abominable deeds. We don't do good. We don't understand and seek after God. We've turned aside. We've been corrupt. We have no knowledge or experience of the goodness of God. Notice this very devastating phrase in verse 4. These people, as they eat bread, the common practice of eating bread every day, they eat up my people. They devour people. In other words, I eat and I fill my belly, and at the same time, I run and walk over anybody whoever gets in my way. They do not call upon the Lord, and they shame the plans of the poor. These sort of things would be examples of the demands of God would be that you would walk blamelessly. You would do what's right. You would speak truth in your heart. Verse 3 and 4 and 5 of Psalm 15. That's God's law. He demands, if you're going to live in his presence, that you would walk blamelessly. Do right. And if you do those things, then you shall never be moved. You'll be welcomed in. Or as we use in the popular lingo, you'll go to heaven when you die. So then, if all have fallen short of the glory of God, what hope is there? Is the Bible's message only law? God has demands, and if you don't meet those demands, then you're out. That's why you need to understand the second part, 
law and gospel, law and grace. And very simply, I think the category of gospel, the way that the Lutheran tradition defines it, would be like this. If law is everything God demands, then gospel is God providing everything that God demands through Jesus Christ. The law is everything that God demands, blameless, upright, speaking truth in your heart, perfectly obeying the moral commandments of God's law. Gospel then is all of those demands have been met through the Lord Jesus Christ so that everything that God demands has been provided for you as a gift. Both in your state of being, who you are, your identity, your union with Jesus, and in your actual becoming more like that person. And this is what the whole idea of the Holy Spirit is about. So can you read Psalms 14 and 15 and then make sense of the whole Bible a little bit better? Do you feel as if these concepts, okay, law, gospel, God does make demands. Do you understand that, friends? Are you here today and you're not a Christian? You don't normally go to church? Maybe this is new, kind of freshener. God, he exists. It's only foolishness to say in your heart or with your lips that he does not. I was thinking about this and doing some studies, and as I was this week preparing for this message, came across a study in UC Berkeley where they did a lie detector test, and they got a bunch of people on a piece of paper that said they're, they're atheists, they don't believe in God, and then they put them in the lie detector and asked them a bunch of questions about whether they believed in God, and then all of them, for the most part, it was something like 90-some percent of them failed the lie detector when they asked, do you really not believe there is a God whatsoever? In other words, there's really no such thing as an atheist. Everybody knows deep down inside the way they've been made in the image of God. There is a God, and he makes demands. He is holy, and therefore he cannot dwell in unholiness. And that's the God of the Bible. Blameless is the demand in short. So what does God provide? And we said all that the law demands through Jesus Christ. But where do we get that from Psalm 14 and Psalm 15? So here's, here's the example I want to teach you about law and gospel. If you're reading Psalm 14, notice the way that there's three sections. You can even see it broken down by the paragraphs in your handout. Section one is verses one through three. Section two is four through six. And then section seven. One, two, and three. The first two sections, they're all law. They say no helpful, hopeful words about our state. It all is condemning, finger-pointing. You should feel naked and exposed. You should feel dirty and ashamed. You should feel as if you're looking at a mirror and you're like, ugh, I don't like what I see. Then, section three is gospel. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. This is an exasperated Hebrew phrase that's trying to communicate the idea of, oh, if only God would save out of Zion. And then there is the promise given. When the Lord restores, notice that this word here is not if, it is when. 
confident hope that the Lord will restore. And the restore is paralleling what? Salvation. Salvation will come for Israel. The Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. And at that time, Jacob should rejoice and Israel will be glad. Because, as Psalm 15 and 24 are going to make plain, there's no one that's worthy to ascend the holy hill of God except for the one that is blameless, who has clean hands and a pure heart. And as you look over the face of the whole earth, there's not a single one. And that's why someone had to come from heaven to earth. Jesus Christ became the blameless one, clean hands, pure heart, lived a blameless, perfect, righteous life in our place And then he died on a cross, ascending, literally ascending the holy hill of God, Mount Zion. And instead of being crowned as the king, as the psalmist is is longing for the kingdom to be restored, oh, who's going to save Zion and the nation of Israel? Oh, Jesus is going to do that and much, much more. He is going to be the true Israelite who perfectly obeys God's law, but then his crown will be a crown of thorns as he is mounted on a cross on Mount Zion. And therefore, the temple curtain got torn in two when Christ died and screamed out his final words. It's finished on the cross, was buried into the grave, and then ascended from the grave, resurrected to new life, and now dwells forever, God and man, in the tent of God, in the holy presence of God. There is a human in heaven, and that human is Jesus Christ. And those who would put their faith and their trust in Jesus for their salvation can, just like Psalm 14, verse 7, believe and hope in gospel that the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. He will redeem and make new the heavens and the earth. Therefore, everything that God demanded has been fulfilled and provided in Jesus Christ. There is both law and there is gospel. So as we conclude today's message, let me give you a few thoughts then for you to think about why this really matters a lot. Well, first, it helps you read your Bible. I'm giving you a secret key in a way to make sure that when you're reading the Bible, you need to ask yourself in terms of a very basic question, is what I'm reading law or is what I'm reading gospel? Is it making demands on me? Is it telling me what I'm supposed to do? Or is it telling me what God has done and what God has provided or promised? Those two broad categories summarize pretty much the whole Bible. Now, we're being simplistic here, but this is a good place to start. And if you don't know how to read the Bible, start with this. Law, what God demands. Gospel, what God provides through his promises and as those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So this really matters a lot because it's going to help you read Psalm 14 and realize that the first two sections... Wow, that's a lot of law. And then finally, there's one little verse, and it gives gospel hope and promise. And then when we're reading the collection, too, of Psalms 15 to 24, there's a progression that moves from law to gospel as well that we'll hopefully see in weeks to come. So that's the first thing. I want you to know how to rightly read the Bible so that way, as C.F.W. Walter said, it does not remain a closed book to you. And if you've truly been born again and the Spirit of God has opened your eyes, I believe it's because you have experienced both law and you've experienced gospel. Secondly, do you know how to apply the Bible? Ooh, this is more important. You can read it. You can get it. You can understand it. And then you can wrongly apply it. For example, take Psalm 14. 
You could make a declarative statement that everyone's a sinner and therefore go around and beat people with the Bible and tell them, you're all a bunch of sinners. And that could be true. But if you don't finish the psalm with verse 7 or you don't finish the Bible with gospel, then you've really given them an incomplete message. You've not rightly applied the Bible to someone's heart or life. And in fact, one of the most difficult things for a pastor or a discipler is knowing, does this person need the law? Because they're proud, they're arrogant, they're rebellious, they're kind of obstinate in their sin and just be like, I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm an atheist by functional life circumstance. I'm going to just do what I'm going to do. And a lot of people are living that way. And you know what they need? Law. They need to be looking at the demands of God like the mirror and saying, oh my goodness, I feel horrible because of God's holy demand and I am falling woefully short. So there are times when you need to get out of the Bible toolbox, the law of God, and you need to use the law lawfully, helpfully, exposing sin. But then there are times when you need to give gospel. And this is the part that as a pastor, I'm going to especially press in on because there are many times when people come to me and I realize they're already condemned. They're already feeling shame and guilt. They're feeling like, how could I have done this thing in the past or in the present? Or I just did this last week, Pastor Phil. And I feel terrible about it. Well, let's go to Psalm 14. You are corrupt. Do you realize how nasty you are? No, they need gospel. They need healing. They need hope. They need to be reminded of God's love for them in Christ Jesus, that even while you're still a sinner, Christ died for you. So friends, think through your conversations with other Christians. Are your conversations filled with a heavy dose of law all the time where you're just constantly demanding more and more of people? Or do you have the sensitivity the wisdom and the ability to know this person just needs a hug. They need hope. They need healing. They need words of comfort. And praise be to God that his word has provided just that. Lastly, if you understand law gospel, you will read the Bible rightly, you will apply the Bible rightly, and you will preach the Bible rightly. Earlier this week, I was meeting with a church member and they said, I really think embassy, we could use a shot in the arm in our encouragement to share the gospel. So here you go, Embassy Church, let's share the gospel. If you want to rightly share the gospel, then you need to know law and gospel. You need to know that if someone's going to fully understand the message of the Bible, they need to realize that God in heaven has made demands on people to be holy. And we are not holy. We have fallen short of his glory. But Romans 3 did not end with using Psalm 14 to beat you over the head like a hammer so that you just get down into the dust and kick you while you're down and say, you're just a terrible sinner. Romans 3 transitions and says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and in God's kindness he sent forth Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins so that God would be just and the justifier. He would be righteous and not just turn a blind eye to sin, he would say, I am holy and I will maintain my holiness and my righteousness by punishing Jesus in your place. To read Romans 3 and realize law and gospel is a great application of Psalms 14 and 
other various passages of Scripture as Paul concludes them. Use that as a great way to share the gospel. Tell people that, yeah, the bad news is actually far worse than what you probably think it is. You don't need a self-help book. You don't need a little, like, extra inspirational speech. It's not what this is. You guys notice that? Like, this, yeah, it's not very inspirational, Pastor Phil. I don't feel like I just got three takeaways to have a better marriage or how to better parent my kids or some sort of like tips or techniques to sleep better tonight. No, I'm I'm giving you the truth about God and you so that you don't go to hell. I'm, I'm giving you hope for how to enter into the presence of God so that you can then daily remind yourself and others of the gospel, law and gospel. And my hope and prayer, friends, is that we will be more equipped and better able to apply the Bible to our own hearts, to our own church members, and then to those non-Christians around us. And sometimes they might already feel guilty and you just should preach them Jesus. And sometimes they are just so content in their moral abilities. Some of you weren't here today, but Etienne, his testimony earlier, what did he say? I was a great Pharisee. I felt really good about my own righteousness. I look at Psalm 15 and says, who shall ascend the holy hill of God? And Etienne might as well have said, me, I'm good enough. I'm blameless. And then somebody gave him the law of God and said, it's not good enough, Etienne. And it crushed him. And that crushing was the best thing that could have happened to him. Because it was in that place of being poor in spirit and broken and contrite that God would lift and raise him and make him a new man. And he's been different ever since. And that's not just Etienne's testimony. That's everybody here who is a Christian. You've experienced law and gospel. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, my hope and prayer is that you would too. Believe that God has provided everything that he demands, not by just saying, here's the commandments, obey them, but by giving us Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending Jesus to provide everything that we need in life and godliness. Thank you that the Spirit of God has been poured out upon us so that when we read Psalm 14 and 15, there is hope to actually increasingly become more like Christ, become blameless, and live a righteous life. So I want to ask that you would unleash these fellow believers into the world and into their week, cherishing these basic concepts, that you are holy and you do make demands and that that is right and good, but that even when we in our sinful state could never obey your commandments, you sent your son and he did everything that the law demanded. And therefore, we can receive that as a gift. We want to pray that we will learn with wisdom how to rightly apply either law or gospel depending on the situation and the circumstance and that if someone is hurting and broken, that we will not beat them down with more law, but that we will lift them up and give them hope in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.